This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2109, Can't Be Held Accountable, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2109, Can't Be Held Accountable, a cliffhanger. We have to wait until January to find out what happened. In the meantime, we have quite a show lined up for you. We are happy to welcome onto the program the great Kelly Giddish and Peter Scanavino. They're here together, hanging out with us, talking about their acting process and all that happens in this incredible episode. After that, guest star Vincent Carthizer digs into his portrayal of Stephen Getz. And finally, SVU producing director Norberto Barba gives us a view of season 21 from the other side of the camera. All of this is happening right here on The Squad Room, brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. So we're here on The Squad Room, and my guests are Kelly Giddish and Peter Scanavino. Oh, yeah. Hi. Thanks for coming back. Both sure. Pleasure. Peter has now tied Warren as uh, being on three times. Three times? The oh, most. Look at that. Yeah. Look oh, at really? that. Dedicated. I'm, I'm finally made it, Mom. <laughs> look, look at me. Look at me. <laughs> so what's been happening on SVU that we haven't seen on screen? Is there any fun stuff going on behind the scenes that you could tell us? Well, today we were on set, and it's the first really, really cold day in New York. Oh, and we were not complaining just before <laughs> we started recording this about how cold it was and how we were staring into the sun. Yeah, if I'm mumbling or really inarticulate, it's because my face is still thawing out from being on the street corner, staring directly at the sun, mm-hmm. and trying to pretend like there's not a negative 10-degree wind blowing in your face. <laughs> I feel like the, the walk down 23rd Street from the train to here is the windiest it is. block yeah. in Manhattan. It's you a know, wind tunnel. It yeah. is. And I, I was coming here for an audition once when I was like 23. And I got off. It's four blocks, four long blocks. And I was coming in for the part of a prostitute. So I had on like a, a three-inch skirt, you know, like... And it must have been February, and I had on false eyelashes. I got here. There was there was only one set of eyelashes still on. Um, like, I was I had mascara running down because my eyes have been watering because the wind and the cold. So, yes, it is a very cold yeah. and windy walk. I think that's a walk that every actor in, in, in New York knows to uh, audition for Law & Order. You get <laughs> off at uh, 8th, 8th Avenue and 23rd Street stop, and then it's like the four long blocks. And when I was first on the show, my first season, Season 16, I didn't get a uh, courtesy pickup, which means I had to take the you know train to work every day. And many a time did I do that walk in February at like 5 in the morning. <laughs> get there, you have to thaw out. This is our last episode before the holiday break, and I was wondering what you guys are thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas and if that's exciting uh, or do you dread it? I, it's, it's both. <laughs> I mean, it's I love Thanksgiving. I love family holidays, you know, full stop but uh this thanksgiving it'll be really fun i'm cooking for 20 people peter is the best cook i've That's ever met not, this is not true. true but i'm cooking for 20 people and i feel like this year i've, I've done a lot of big thanksgivings before and i'm kind of like you know what all you need to do is have like a passable turkey mashed potatoes to counter for a dryish turkey and make sure everyone gets drunk before the eating starts. <laughs> so and then they'll be so grateful for the food. Everyone's with wine. They're like, right, oh, this is amazing. And you can be like, eh, not that good, but whatever. Everybody's having fun. <laughs> so let's switch gears for a minute. Watching actors, actresses, when the guests come on, someone like Vincent Carthizer, episode nine, does he bring something different? Because you're, you're with the same people all the time, and then you see an actor of that stature is obviously very good actor coming in from nowhere. Is the technique different? Does he? Is there a learning curve for him getting into the show? I mean, there's nerves involved to it, so maybe it's easier for them to just kind of relax and go into it, and maybe sometimes other guest stars might take, um, you know, a couple takes before they relax into it. But, you know, they're all bringing their A game. Vincent Carthizer is a, he's a kook in the best way. Watching the episode, he's, he's just a great actor. Yeah. And I was thinking about for, because we're going to talk about episode nine, do you have to adjust to the energy of the guest? Um, I think you kind of adjust to everybody adjusts to each other's because you're it's all kind of a living organism, you know what I mean? And if you 
you have to be malleable and you have to be sensitive to how other people are doing. You can't have an idea in your head on how the scene's going to go because oftentimes it doesn't go like that. And if you're not able to adapt yourself, then you're kind of not acting in the scene. You're doing some weird portrayal that you've thought of in your head and it's not grafting onto what's actually going on in the room. So I think that the best actors um, are able to just be like, okay, here's kind of my idea, but how does this relate to the my scene partner who I'm in the scene with? You know what I mean? And you don't know how that's going to unfold until you're actually doing it. Yeah. And I don't, and stature doesn't tilt the scale either way for me in terms of watching an actor make strong choices. Um, you know, sometimes like it's people with great, huge stature come in and they, they make these awesome choices and you're like, ah, oh, this is why you're, right. you're at the top of your game. But there's also, you know, other guest stars you've never heard of that are making these awesome choices. And, and that's when, you know, I like to see somebody do five takes five different ways, yeah. you know, and, and react different off of, off of their different choices every time. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's what makes this job really exciting. I, I love when I see an episode and, you know, it'll be a scene that I, I wasn't in or whatever, and you'll see an actor. Oftentimes, they'll come in for, you know, it's one or two scenes in an episode, and you can just tell from the minute they open their mouth that they're just killing it. That it's, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes my favorite performances and episodes are these, you know, smaller parts, and the actor just comes in and just, you know, crushes the scene, and you kind of expect, like, wow, that was fantastic. You know what I mean? What do you do when they do something totally different than what you're expecting? Like you were just... You just react. Yeah, you, you just, just you got to go with it, you know? Is it ever catch off guard and you don't know what to do? Or That's good, though, because yeah. that's part of it, right? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And you can't... It's never happened before. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the story, it's never... You, you've never seen this before, so you can actually... You know, half your work is done. Do you have discussions about what you're going to do beforehand? No. Not no, we all. have rehearsal. You have a rehearsal, yeah. So, and, and that's just basically to facilitate, you know, the technical Movement. aspects of it. So, because you can't be like, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go all over the place because that just wouldn't work because you need to be in the, the parameters of, of the camera. But within that, unless you it's can Friday do Night Lights, whatever you want. Yeah, unless it's Friday Night Lights. Which I think well, is my favorite show. Tom Sizemore, then you can yeah. go nuts. You can go wherever you want, apparently. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, but they have to light, they have to know if yeah, they're going to boom you, or, you There's know. a lot of different technical components that you can't violate. There, There is some, like, math to it in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of the acting, you know what I mean? You can never, I think it's kind of a cardinal rule. You can never really ask an actor, like, give me more or do it like this. You know, your job as an actor is not to direct other actors and it's not to, like, shape their performance either. It's to kind of take what they give you and react as if that is what's happening. You know what so I mean? if you get less than you were hoping for, you don't say anything. Right? Yeah, but less, maybe it's less than you were hoping for, but that doesn't mean it's not enough. Right. Do you know what I mean? It might be different than what you expected, but you've got you've to roll with that. You know what I mean? And I think oftentimes, and I've definitely experienced this in scenes, where you'll think like, oh, they're not given a lot. But then you'll see it, and they are, you know. And I think it was your, episode. yeah, it was your idea of what they should be giving that was kind of getting in the way of you being able to perceive what they're actually giving you. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. maybe your fault. Um, you know, there's a lot of mismatch of how you expect a scene to go, how you feel about the scene, and then when you actually see it. Like I know for a fact that I've definitely done scenes where I'm like, I killed that scene. I walk, I <laughs> nailed it, and then I see it, and I'm like, oh god. <laughs> or like on the other end, where I feel like I completely blew the scene. It was just terrible, and then you see it, and you're like, that was the simplest, best work you did all episode. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So you don't know. You kind of really have to just let it go. I worked on a movie over the summer before I started this job as a music supervisor, and it was a music film, um, and it was an August Wilson play, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and George Wolfe directed it, and Chadwick Boseman was in it, and uh, Viola Davis. And Chadwick Boseman was learning to, he was playing a trumpet player, and he doesn't play trumpet, and he stayed in character for the, so he would talk to me about, like, the music and stuff. If you were to leave this, and you have to get into something like, you only have six weeks or something. Right. Would you take more of that approach to, to a role? Or what, the, like, the staying in, in character the whole yeah. time? No, I mean, not the whole, he wasn't the whole time. But right. most of the time, he, I, or do you think that's a, too much? No, I don't know. I think it's all kind of, listen, if you're, you know, we all know the kind of stories of Daniel Day-Lewis, and apparently doesn't break character. But if what you're producing is what he produces, then <laughs> go for it. Because if that's what it takes for you to get there, that's fantastic. Sometimes with actors, they'll do the whole, I don't break character, but then they're not really bringing any kind of real life and it becomes this kind of... Effective. Almost like performance beyond the cameras. And it's like this effective thing. You're just like, look, 
just cut it out. You know what I mean? It, it all depends. Like if that's what it takes to create behavior and that's how you get into the character and you're really getting into the character that way, then then go for it. But if it's a performative thing so people think you're like a serious actor or something, then I, 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 don't, I don't get that. I mean, it'd be different like if I was doing a Western and I had to wear a certain type of clothes all day. Like that's yeah. that kind of thing. Well, this was a period piece. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that right. kind I'm of... not disparaging... No, I understand. I'm just Chadwick Boseman at all. But that that kind of thing, I think, lends itself to you. You hold yourself a different way if you got a corset on, or you know, like there's. And, you, and you're I doing wonder, an accent, and you're yeah, in your twenties, and yeah. you're. I mean, I mean, honestly, it would be fun. I've never had the opportunity where I could do something like that, and you know, maybe it would be an amazing experience to be like. I mean, I remember doing stuff like that in, in acting school. Think, like, I'm going to live as this yeah. character for a week, walking around New York Your City with a cane. Like, and like, out of it. You got yeah, that they'd be like, okay, <laughs> okay, buddy. But you don't not go nice. home, right? Because you're, you're on not, location. You're not in so 1890. Yeah. Change the diaper. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how Joaquin Phoenix was on The Joker. So. Yeah. I'm sure, like, insane, right? I, mean, I don't it's, know. It's, it's got to be. But, but again, because, like, because that I'm, movie, you see that, and, like, if that's what it takes for him to give that performance, which I thought was absolutely incredible then go for it do you know what i mean it, that that was art and do it <laughs> do you miss the theater which we kind of came up we to were that. talking about that the other day it's yeah. been so long um so i since i've done it but yeah i mean i would love to yes i miss it i, I think i miss it i don't know what it's like anymore yeah. yeah there's not enough time really to do much besides svu right to, to rehearse a show Preview a show, open a show, and do the run. It's it would take longer than that hiatus. Yeah. So, and the hiatus, my behind usually wants to find a patch of sand somewhere and look <laughs> out at a horizon. Yeah, with kids playing in the sand in front of me. That's that's usually what what I'm seeking. Ah, uh, not not not, not more, work. more work. Yeah, <laughs> no. I was thinking and researching. I can't find a lot of examples of people on shows this big that do other things you know it's it tends right. to be when you're doing the 24 episode shows yeah. like those 10 episode cable shows yeah they can you do can whatever do, they right, want you know right right eight, 10 episode but yeah you guys are locked in here for for a long period of time yeah and it's i mean it's also thank goodness which is great yeah then kelly and i we have young kids you know and i don't think you want to miss this period you know i couldn't imagine myself on my deathbed and be like god I wish I would have spent less time with my kids when they were <laughs> done the play. seven and under done, and done gone, you know, and done that play. So episode nine, Can't Be Held Accountable, a big episode for you. And then you go through your trials and tribulations right? of that. Sonny Carisi over and over. In the beginning, after the teaser, we see you, you have now started going to therapy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're talking a little bit about Peter's character. And you're mentioning about your father, and then you bring that up at the very last second. You come back to it later. And I was just wondering, why was that left for the final moment? Um, I think it it reveals more about Rollins' approach to therapy um, more than, you know, content or subject matter. It's just like, oh, yeah, and the important thing that I should have talked about, yeah, that's we can maybe get to it next time. Yeah. I think that just shows, it reveals a lot about how her character, how, how Rollins deals with the whole therapy world. You know, it's, she's doing it because she suspects she needs to be there, but actually doing the work in the therapy sessions, I think she, she finds very tough. But you did want to go elsewhere in episode eight, uh, We Dream of Machine Elves. Mm -hmm. you, you, were, you were willing to mm -hmm. go with Adler and go to another dimension. Right. And so so right. it is in you to kind of dig in, right? Right, right. I think the guide is much different, you know, in Adler and in my therapist. You think Adler is a more fun approach? <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, it, she's less beholden to him and to finding, um, it's more out of curiosity and, and finding answers to her questions rather than uncovering some uncomfortable things in her life and revealing why she does some things she does. I think that's a little more uncomfortable for her. And then prior to that, you're talking about your relationship with Creasy and you're kind of tiptoeing around that too, mm -hmm. which the doctor's trying to pull out of you. But, yeah. And I was thinking that here you are in therapy and then this whole thing goes down and you, and you get kidnapped. And I know. And I was like, she's never going back to I therapy. I know, exactly. They ruined it for exactly. you. Exactly. So when you're reading on the page that she's talking about you in, in therapy, what are you thinking is going to be happening with Carisi and Rollins? You're not in that scene, but you're aware of it, obviously. Right. At the read-through. Is that – does your mind start working or do you try and guess where it's going or do you um, – not, not really try to guess where it's going, but just kind of what the meaning is and 
to kind of divine what the writer's intentions are for putting that in because that kind of, even though obviously I don't hear that, I don't know that, but I think it's kind of informative in the world in which we are. And then you kind of see how Carisi reacts once she's um, been kidnapped, particularly in the in the follow-up yeah. episode. You know what I mean? I, I think it just speaks to this relationship that they have is complicated. It's kind of ambiguous in, as to what the meanings are, but it's clear that it's not just like, oh, we're buddies or in passing, but it's not necessarily the other thing. It's just a, it's a fraught um, relationship, and I think that kind of clues me into it when I, when I read that in the script. Obviously, you know that the fans are really pushing for, for this to happen. Right. Is all that in your head? or? Well, I think there's some things like, let's say it did happen. Then you instantly lose the mystery of it and the tension of it, and it becomes another tension of like, how do you work? And I think that's a lot less interesting. You know what I mean? I feel like a lot of the whole Rollins-Carisi thing, it's not because we've had a ton of scenes where we're like dealing with it. I think it's a lot of just people inferring and reading in between the lines and what's yeah. not said. And I think that's what's really cool and interesting that is about very cool. it. And it makes it deeper and more meaningful that it is this kind of unspoken thing. You know what I mean? And you can see in the characters' emotional attachments to each other as opposed to scenes that are like, you know, here's them doing this together or, or, or that. And I just find that more interesting now, you know, what you can say, like, with a look as opposed to a whole mm-hmm. storyline about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Is that similar to your take on yeah, it? Yeah, and, and I know for myself, and I can probably speak for you as well, like, we just kind of respect it, the relationship. So for us to say, you know, oh, did, are they are they or aren't they, you know, like, it's interesting, but we respect what's going on. And, and sometimes... I think the writers respond to what they're inferring and what they're seeing, you know, on, on an unspoken basis, you know, between mine and Peter's character on screen. Yeah. And, like, when Rollins has important moments, there is Carisi. And so they give us those opportunities to, you know, like, your best friend and you don't have to say a lot, you know? Yeah. And, and it's really great to have those moments on a TV show where everything is bang, 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 next plot, next, you know, yeah. next point, next point, next point. It's nice to, like, sit in with a friend and just be like, this sucks, Right. You know, or this is awesome, you know, like, can you come over? I just had a baby and, you know, and like, <laughs> let's celebrate. Yeah, know? I think there's this kind of, like I've said this a few other times, but it's really been a relationship that's grown organically out of the show. I don't think the intention was ever that, okay, these two mm-hmm. are going to have this kind of, you know, in, intensely close relationship, whatever that means. But that just kind of organically grew out of, I think, me and Kelly and, you know, I love Kelly as an, as an actor and a friend, and I think that translates onto the screen. But I think it's cool because we have this... I feel like there is a private life of Rollins and Carisi that kind of exists outside of the show mm-hmm. and that there's, like, a lot there. And I think there is... Carisi can be a, a, a version of himself or a more open version of himself, I think, with with Rollins in a way that he he's not with, with other people. And I think that's a very, very close relationship that's... It's, it's awesome to have. Where would you say both of you are in your character's relationship with Benson is currently? Um, I think, Because you, you, you got in a little trouble in episode eight for maybe crossing the line, right? Right, right. DMT. You know, I think Rollins is the first one to jump headfirst into exploring something like that, you know, that's something that other detectives would shy away from. So she's like, oh, God, again, you know? Um, yeah, we I get in trouble with her, but also there's, again, at important moments, they can put Rollins and Benson together, and there's a deep understanding because we're both single mothers, you know, and that work these really, really tough jobs. Um, so, and we've laid so much groundwork for understanding and for mutual respect and trust. Just like when my kids push boundaries, you know, I think it's maybe Rollins pushes boundaries with her, but it's it's in a healthy way. Now, it used to, I think it used to very much not be in a healthy way because I think her motives were, you know, it's like gambling and all that kind of stuff. Now it's, you know, curiosity and like a, a drive to find like some more truth about something, like the DMT episode. And now, I mean, you're kind of, in this episode, you're on cat. Like, you're telling Finn, like, you got a real cat in because she's crossing the Yeah, lines, it's like yeah. sibling rivalry, I yeah. think. It's fun. <laughs> Pucci comes, I mean, he's in part 33, which I just rewatched, and that's that's a fantastic episode. As much as you get along, you have very different views on mm-hmm. things in that episode, yeah. which I thought was incredible to to rewatch now, 
you know, knowing you um, right. more. You well, know? Yeah, you, definitely, you, you fight hardest with the people you're, you're closest to. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. no, those are, like those why are, aren't you seeing this the same way I am? If we, <laughs> you can see the disappointment in your faces. Right. It's just like, these people are. <laughs> no, that episode was, was kind of funny because it was definitely like Benson's like mama bear comes yeah. in. And it's like <laughs> you're two unruly children yeah. yelling at each other at Thanksgiving dinner. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Bucci's only, he's in that for, Couple minutes, but he guys, made an impression, didn't yeah, he? Guys, yeah. And he uh, made an impression on me and and um and and the writers as well. Um, and so when this opportunity came up, you know, like that Rollins was going to be kidnapped, basically, Bucci's name was in the mix, and they're like, that would be awesome. And I think they chose right. He was so much. Nick Turturro is very, very fun to work with, and and it's such a such a great character. You know, like we don't get those characters anymore. Like he's just true and true. So much fun to act with, you know, and uh-huh. is totally committed, and that's that's a lot of fun, and I think it, it pays off in in the performances. Yeah, and he's got those scenes in Nine where you know he's losing it in the hospital, and he's just so incredibly frustrated, and you seem to you understand why, you know, mm-hmm. even though he's about to go over the edge, you could see that he just feels so. Yeah. There's nothing he could do, and you're trying and you're trying, but it's it's an impossible situation with Gets. Right. And I think you get, again, at the end of the episode, kind of like something goes on behind closed doors and, and you're disappointed yet again. Yep, yep. <laughs> and and are we going to see an end to this cycle? For um, Yes. I think um, you will see in future episodes, there's, you know, there's definitely a Creasy in the courtroom scene. Um, you know, I think Creasy starts standing on his own two feet. Uh, a bit more. And I think that's really what's so frustrating for Creasy in the episode is that, again, it's this, what he views as a miscarriage of justice, that he's part of the machinery that's enabling this, but he can't, he can't stop it. He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the the standing in the DA's office right now to throw a wrench in these gears. I so he kind of has to, he just takes it. And I think it's it's creating a lot of, lot of anger uh, in him. Yeah, and I think Nick Totoro's, uh was able to kind of, you know, put that anger that everybody's feeling at these situations out there. And then you're going with him, and obviously in 10, we can't talk about what happened in 10, but I think he sees, you guys see something in each other that you're just, there's an understanding. I think very much. And, and you know, those those people that you meet, like at a bar, at a party, at a, at a get-together, at a, at a work function, and you start talking to them, you never met them, and you're just like, oh, there's like an instant, you know, yeah. Those those things happen for all of us. You're like, oh wow, like I could be friends with this person. And I'm, I'm 35 or 40 years old, and I'm like, I I think I just met a new friend. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it's. I think she was kind of like, oh, this guy is interesting. There was a little spark, and she was curious about him. You know, like where does he come from? And he shows up in this capacity, and it's. Um, she gets it. She's got two daughters. He's got two daughters. So once again, there's a parallel there. In, in preparation for knowing that you're going to be end this episode kidnapped in this terrible ordeal, is there? Is, do you have to approach that any different than your regular episodic acting? Or is, no, no, it's just no, another day yeah, at the office. It's just another day. It is, and like my my parents were actually in town during when I was filming that episode. They're like, <laughs> "How was your day?" And I was like, "Well, I got held up at gunpoint. I um." It's so funny. Jo- it's like sometimes you think our jobs are so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Climb a uh, fire escape today. Yeah, exactly. Save a woman uh, from jumping. So I want to thank you both for coming on, and we're coming up on the hiatus. we got a cliffhanger. All right. And we're going to see you guys whenever we come back, and we're going to find out what happens yeah, to Amanda. Yeah, the second Amanda part, is, yeah, yeah, the second part is great. Hang on. Yes. Thank you so much for you coming. You got it. Thank, thank you. you. Many people know Vincent Carthizer from his run as Pete Campbell on Mad Men. And here we discuss how he channeled a different kind of darkness for his portrayal of Stephen Getz. I'm on the squad room with Vincent Carthizer today. A lot of guest stars come from comedy or will do something different and then come to SVU. You're a dramatic actor. What was your thoughts on coming and did you know what kind of part you were playing and how far into it do you get before you agree to do something like this? I mean, Law & Order is an iconic show, and I personally love the show. I've watched the original Law & Order 
from the beginning. I mean, I used to watch it every single night with my mom and dad back when there was no internet. And then SVU as well. I mean, I've watched probably more SVU than probably a lot of other TV shows. And especially if I'm feeling sick. Yeah. <laughs> like for some reason when sure. I'm feeling sick, I'll like download a season and just be like, boom, Mariska, take me away from all of this. Take me away from my pain by watching other people in pain. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been wanting to get on the show for a while. It's tough with schedules to make it work. And uh, this just kind of timed out. And the, the fact of doing a two-parter was intriguing to you? Having a little arc or didn't really matter? Yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it, when it comes down to doing a project, you know, it has more to do with, like, the actual work, you know? So do you get to script and do you have questions for Warren and stuff about your character's motivation or is it just there and you can you can run? Well, I'm going to make up my own decisions. And then when I get on set, they'll tell me if they're wrong. Oh, okay. Because, I mean, what I, what I find oftentimes in film and TV nowadays is that unless the director calls you and is like, I want to talk to you about this, there's something you need to know. Like, I want to send you down the right path so you don't waste your time. But most of the time they want you to show up with ideas and they want you to make it their own, your own. And then sometimes they'll come over and be like, okay, you know, you're going this direction with it, but what if there's also this other option, you know? And that usually means don't do what you were just doing <laughs> and do this other thing, please. So, Do you think about those choices for a long time prior? Like if you're going to play it like larger than life or bigger, like how before you get to set, do you know exactly what you're doing? It really depends. Like in stage you have so much time to work on something and figure out all the beats and you need to know exactly where you're going to stand and all this stuff. And most of the world around you, you're creating. The whole fourth wall is in your imagination. There's grass on the ground. It's not really there. In film and TV, like, you don't really know where anything's going to be until you get there. So I can spend all day long imagining how I'm going to talk and how I'm going to do this particular technicality in a scene. And then I'll get there and I'll realize... The other actor isn't giving me what I thought he was going to give me. They're giving me something totally different. Or there's not a desk where I was thinking there would be a desk. Or whatever it might be, something small like that. So when it comes into, like, the minutia of the thing, I try to stay away from that. But I do, like I said before, just know, like, your basic beliefs about the character and about the scene in particular. You know, like, what you want and uh, how you want to get it. Is the mentality of the character you're playing, you're just so much smarter and above everybody? No, I mean, I don't think that he thinks he's smarter. I think he understands how the world works. And I think when you've seen behind the curtain, and not to say I have, I've had glimpses. I'm just saying there's a, there's a world out there that operates, and I think we all know this, it's like eyes wide shut. There's societies of people, and I don't think it's a secret, that they operate on different levels. And so it's not necessarily about like, oh, I think I'm smarter than you, like has nothing to do with being smarter. It's just, I know everybody. I know all the people who employ the people who employ the people who employ you. It's not that I'm smarter or that I'm better than you. I'm, you're just the fucking puppet. You might be a genius, but like, I don't think any of the people who are like running the world are geniuses. It's not like they're like coming up with the theory of relativity or anything. They're just people who are maintaining power. Well, what gives Getz, what gives people like that the ability to have the power and run the show? Well, in Getz's situation is he holds all the cards. I mean, he has incriminating evidence on these people. How did he get into that position? I think it's one of those things where it's like he went through the right channels, he went to the right colleges, and he started giving favors to people and throwing parties and people came to him because it was an, a simple, easy way to have a perverted good time, I guess is one way I can put it. I don't know if that's the right way, but it seems like that's what's happening as men are coming to him and having sex with these women and maybe giving them a couple hundred bucks or something. But it's not like they're, it's not like they're paying him to have sex with the girls. They're having sex with the girls and his knowledge of their sex with the girls, keeps him in control. Was there anything that happened that was fun or funny or that you weren't expecting on the set of Law & Order SVU? And it's Laugh Riot, man. It is? Who's oh funny? Oh my God, every single person. The first day I get on set, I like put my 
I, I, I have this like leather bound thing uh, I script and I put it down and I see like, oh, you're like one of those guys, huh? And Marish comes on and she's like, oh, yeah, one of those, huh? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. And, and Ice is like, yeah, when I worked with Wesley Snipes, he had one of those, but he had all these like notes written and he had all these little like highlighted <laughs> things. You don't have any of those. That's what the real actors do. And I was like, okay, okay, this is nice to meet you, by the way. I'm Vincent. But no, honestly, it's it was really cool, man. Like really good people. So welcoming. Me and Mariska had so much fun, like just cracking each other up. She's a fireball of energy, huh? She just go, go, go. And um, my hands were cuffed behind my back the other day. And I was like, man, this is a bad time for my nose to itch. And Ice was like, your nose itch, man? Which nostril? And I was like, no, I can't. I can't have iced tea scratching my nose. It's just like, I mean, I would love it, but like, I don't think he was really going to do it, but, like, in my mind, I was like, what a good guy. <laughs> what a solid dude. It's just a really good time here on SVU. And, you know, when something goes for as many seasons as this has, you know you're making a good product that people want to see. You know that it's successful. And you also know that people are having fun. And uh, they really are really, really good people here. Do you miss having to be on set every day and, and being the kind of role that you had with Mad Men where it's happening all the time or do you like the freedom of that? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bit like asking someone if they miss their dead brother. I mean, yeah, I miss it. I mean, you know, that's... Mad Men in, in particular was like a pretty special experience, you know. It was the same as this. Like, everyone really loved each other and we all had a lot of laughs and uh, I miss it every day, man. Can I ask you, when you read the pilot, did you in anywhere in your mind think that you were going to be part of what's possibly the best show ever made? Well, I mean, look, the best show ever made, it's super subjective. If I can just reframe your question as like, did I ever think it would be something that like the world embraced and like got this kind of hype? I mean, no, but you have to understand going into that, like most actors, like when people think of actors in the world, you know, some people who maybe know more about the world might think, well, yeah, no, there's a lot of, like, stage actors and there's all sorts of actors. But even TV and film actors, um, what most people don't know is that most of us are never actually part of a success. Like, I'd say, like, 90% of actors are never a part of any success. Like, before that time, I was in, I think, 25 or 30 films and, like, three TV shows, and they paid my bills. No one ever saw them. I mean, some people saw them, but, like, no, not really. And you just kind of, like, keep going. And that's what you don't realize is if you're outside the world that, like, there's this whole list of people under the top 5,000 that just grind away. And so for me, it was just another grind away. I mean, did I like the writing? Hell yeah. Did I like the people? Heck yeah. But you just make it and you kind of lower your expectations for the outcome because... You can't get married to like, you know, when you first get into the industry, you might think like, oh my gosh, I'm on the poster of a movie and oh, it's opening up this weekend. What will happen? And then after like 10 of them open and close with no one going to see it, you'd be a fool to like keep wishing on a prayer like that, you know? So my uncle Bob gave me this advice for my first audition ever. He said, uh, expect that you won't make it because that way, if you don't make it, it won't bother you. And if you do make it, it'll be a nice surprise. Well, with that, Vincent Karthizer, thank you for coming on the Squad Room. <laughs> Thanks for listening to me. Producing director Norberto Barba has worked with Warren Light and Dick Wolf for a very long time. He came into the Squad Room to discuss with us what they are hoping to achieve in season 21. <laughs> Norberto Barba, welcome to the squad room. Thank you for having me. What does a producing director do on a show like this? Well, it's interesting because there are as many definitions of producer director as there are shows. There are places where the producer director is sort of an exclusivity thing where, oh, that producer director is on the show. He's going to direct a quarter of the episodes and he's the common denominator throughout the season. And he kind of preps a little bit of the directors, the other directors. Then there's a producer director who looks over every aspect of production. And that's where I put myself 
into. My feeling is the right way to approach producing directing is to free up the showrunner and writers to do their job. So when they give me a script, I can execute it in conjunction with their guidance and take it to another level. And so I make sure that I become the conduit from writers to production. So everything from casting to locations to the look of the show to the hiring of directors to slotting of the directors and the editing. And I work closely with Warren Light and Julie and we make sure we're all on the same page. I have had great success with wonderful showrunners that I've had great communication where there's a give and take, where the showrunner communicates what's working, what's not working, what we want to embrace, what we want to let go. And that's when the producing director job to me is uh, at its best, where I am working as one with the writers toward a common vision. Could you give me an example of something working in season 21 that's different than prior seasons? Well, I wasn't a producer-director here in prior seasons, so I can't compare the producer-director aspect. So pre-Warren, you were directing oh, here. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't know Warren then. So when he calls you, he comes back for season 21, he calls you and says, come on as producing director. What's that conversation about? Like, what are you guys trying to establish in this season? That, that was a no-brainer. You know, I had just come off Mayans for a year, and then I did FBI for a 13-episode stint. And to be reunited with Warren was a no-brainer. And then we said, okay, we had a similar conversation to what we had when we, we took over the reins of criminal intent. How do we take the show and make it better? How do we make it fresh? What is it that we want to look toward? So we reviewed the last couple of seasons, and we decided that we wanted to make it a little grittier, more real, less clean, a little messy, like life is right. in the squad room of a major city police station. So we started doing more handhelds in the squad room, more dirty overs. We pulled away from using strictly steady cam and just use it here and there. And everything towards giving it an edge and also making New York more of a character and just going out there with long lenses and uh, do the muster scenes where the cops, you know, get together and they're going to—they're doing their plan on how to proceed. Instead of being in the squad room, they're riding it now in the streets. And in episode one, you saw that really well when they were walking down an uncontrolled Lexington Avenue and 47th Street, and we just let it live. Yeah, and, that felt uh, different, though. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. It, it was great. Really, I think the feeling is we want you to feel like you're in New York City— and that the stakes are high and that people get tired and not everything's pretty and clean. And I think it's been a journey towards that end. And uh, you'll see that the squad room's more cluttered. They're writing in the times of when scenes are taking place so that we know, oh, this is later in the day on a Friday. The squad room's a mess. Right, you, know, right. you know, pizza boxes, coffee cups, and that sort of thing. And also using more organic lighting to give you a feel of time and how these cases take time and, and uh, the procedural unfolds. If it's 4 o'clock, you'll feel that 4 o'clock yellow light coming from the windows. And, and, I, and it's been great. I, mean, I think I point to episode 5, Midnight in Manhattan, where really it was to the second that we were doing the yeah. clock and yeah. there was a ticking clock and yeah. we really wanted to feel the change in day and time. And I think we were we were successful in that. So it worked out really well. What makes you decide whether to use the handheld or the steady? Like what? Well, these are director calls and uh, I tend to think we're a director-friendly show. We prep heavily. We support the director and give them all the tools possible to succeed. And certain scenes call for an edge, call for immediacy and urgency. And other scenes need to relax a little bit. You need to pull back. And then that will kind of inform 
whether you go handheld, whether you go long lensy, whether you go steady cam. And so if you're in act towards the end of act two, where everything looks like it's not going to go in the, in the favor of our guys and the clock's ticking, you'll probably find handheld with dirty overs. And as you get later on in act four towards five, the shots get closer and it becomes a little bit more viscerally engaging and emotional. And then as you get moved to the resolution and then you want, you know, it kind of eases off. I mean, that's a sort of a simplistic way of saying that the story informs the choice of execution. And uh, I come from a, a place where I went to the AFI and it was all about story, 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 story. And story should inform every choice. And, uh, and that's what we try to push for here. A lot of the writers have come on the squad room and talked about act outs and punch outs. And what do you need those to achieve? Well, there's several things. I mean, and I make it a point in any show I go that in the call sheet, if there's a scene that's an act out or an act up or teaser in or teaser out, that it's displayed. So everyone knows on the set that this means something more. There's a prioritizing. I mean, episodic directing is about prioritizing. You don't have the time to make everything a masterpiece. So what you do do is you prioritize and say, this is an act out. I want the audience to come back after the commercials and say, I want to see what happens. Right. And so we put in every show, we put importance on these act-outs or act-ups. An act-up, I usually uh, tend to make it a little less cutty and warm the audience back into the story. So usually you'll see me uh, do use more wider shots and then in a smooth mise-en-scene. And then act-out, usually you want to punch it. It's like you're getting some new information or it looks like all's going to be lost. And you really punch the visuals and also the emotional connections so that the audience would want to come back. Teasers are a different thing. Let's talk about the teaser. Dennis Hamill told me that it's the only part of the story that doesn't have a POV of one of the characters in the show, right? One of the main cast. Is that right? It's the only place where the POV could be from somewhere else, right? Yes. The Lord and Order franchise, one of their mandates from the get-go was the audience is never ahead of our main players. Right. So a classic example is, let's say, um, the cops are going to barrel into an apartment, right? There's a shot from inside the apartment where the door bursts open. Well, that's not the law and order way. We have to be with our guys as they burst through. They learn and we learn at the same time. Exactly. Now, there's been an evolution through the years where now there is a little more flexibility in that, where it may be more dynamic to be inside where the door flies open on us, but that we're essentially discovering things with our characters. So we are taking an eye towards telling the story in a dynamic way that would restrict us in that. But we do approach it from our characters' points of view. The teaser is a place where we can introduce what the crime is or who the villain is or who the victim is without our characters being involved in them. And um, the teaser of Nine is a classic example. Our characters are not in it. In fact, it's the journey of a girl from innocence to degradation and corruption and one teaser. And then that becomes the driving force through the whole episode. Talk about the teaser in nine. Like as you directed that episode, what were you trying to achieve in that? I wanted the audience to see how quickly a young, innocent girl can be manipulated and victimized to get to the point where she becomes a corrupt and degraded individual and that we understand that journey without judgment. And so as you follow this character through the episode where she makes choices that you would question, you realize that you learned in the teaser that she herself is a victim and also um, a very young one. And so we have to take that into account. And I think 
I wanted to take you through a visceral journey because there is some uh, graphic stuff in it. And I've shown it to a couple of people because I needed input. I, sometimes I get too close to it. I want someone to react. And everyone's reaction was, oh, my God, that, that's very powerful. And so it's good. So then you feel that, then you're going to want to stay to watch what happens to this person and how her life and her choices inform the choices of another main character. Is that difficult to do? And how many minutes do you have to do that? Well, teasers vary in length. Yeah. I'll use your teasers are three to five minutes. This teaser on page was about nine pages. So I knew it was going to be long. And, and it's the, ba the basic rule is a page a minute, right? Usually. Yeah. We tend to be, I think, 50 seconds a page. So when I first saw the first cut, the teaser was really <laughs> long. And I thought, okay, look, it's, it's everything's there, but let's refine it. And now it's, uh, it's refined. <laughs> and you think you could tell the story in the way you're talking about in three or four minutes, if done properly, but it's ambitious, right? Well, this particular teaser, well, I don't think will ever be four minutes, but it's less than what it was before. But it's okay. If it plays like a movie and it sucks you in right away. So then you don't really notice, oh, that was that was long. Seven, eight minutes. Right, right. Teasers are, depending on what show you, you are, intrinsic to the episode in a way that actually sometimes uh, outweighs some other aspects of the episode. I mean, I remember I was saying this, I did a lot of CSI Miami's and CSI New York's. We would spend a good portion of our shooting on the teaser, I remember spending a day and a half on our teaser in CSI Miami. That's a lot of time for... How, what's the average time here, would you say? No, depending on... I mean, it could be half a day, three quarters of a day. But recently on Better Call Saul, I had an incredible teaser because it went over nights and days. And so every shooting day... We were shooting the episode. There was a portrait of the teaser I was shooting. There was a portrait of the teaser I was shooting. And then here it was the same thing. It was nights and days that because it goes, going on it's supposedly you're going on a journey of four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So in the first episode, you worked with Ian McShane. In the ninth episode, you're Vincent Carthizer. Yes. Both very gifted actors. Mm -hmm. Both, I'm assuming, very, very different actors yeah. and different people from what my experience is. The choices they make in their approach, how do you work with that? Do you, is, are you doing a lot of directing of, of people like that, guest stars um, of that caliber? Yeah, I've directed actors in every level of, um, competence. of competence and achievement. And I remember as a young director, a uh, younger director, you would get intimidated. But I teach my students uh, when I mentor directing. I said, you could go on a show and an actor's been playing that character, say, 15 years. And you will probably be leery of giving them notes. In fact, you must give them notes. The thing is, you may not have anything new to say about their character, but you do have something to say about the moment that this character is in at this time and what the story is about. I tend to not speak too much. I'm very short with my direction. I'll, I'll do first couple of takes. I don't give any direction. I want to see what they bring to the table. Sometimes it's better than anything I would ever think. And then I always call it sculpting. It's like, okay, now I'll shape a little bit. I'll give a one-word uh, direction, uh, usually a verb uh, direction. And that's that. You know, if they don't need direction, if I think I have it, I don't need to say anything. But if I think, oh, I'd love to see it this way, I'll just say, hey, yeah, I, that, that was great. Could we, can you um, try one where you're condescending or something of that nature? Right? But it depends. Actors are all different. But I've worked with a lot of actors who have the reputation of being difficult. And I usually get on really well. And the reason that they may be seen as being difficult is because they see themselves as their own quality control. I've heard them, uh, several actors say that. And that because you have uh, different directors, uh, they don't know if that particular director is looking at them and watching and protecting them. So they feel they have to do it themselves. But when you gain their confidence and trust by watching, by knowing the story, by being super prepared, they will embrace notes. They will embrace your direction. 
And, uh, and that I found to be the case with both of uh, the, the actors you mentioned. Obviously, you directed two of the first nine, but that means there were seven different directors. I know Jean has been here many times. What do you do to someone who's coming, Laurie Collier, or someone who's coming for the first time? How do you help them or guide them? Well, first of all, I think we're going to take pains to make sure that we have more repeat directors. Because every time you have a new director... It's taxing on the cast and crew because they have to learn the ways to communicate, uh, also anything personality-wise that's different. And for the first nine, I was the only repeat director. And that shouldn't be the case. I think in the future, we're going to have more repeat directors. In terms of bringing on new folks, what I tend to do is have them look at episodes that I recommend. In a season like this, I say watch everything. You're not going to watch 21 years of episodes, but we're going to watch recent ones and see where we are. If a story revolves around a particular character, I'll say, hey, in season 14, this character came and you should see this episode. And then since we're doing some different things visually here uh, this season, I tend to show them something and talk about how we're approaching these scenes uh, and um, where we used to, especially if you've come back and you haven't come back since, you know, for a while, instead of a steady cam, you used a handheld as a, as a walk and talk. But Warren and Julie are the very detailed when it comes to tone meetings. And we make sure that the director has all the tools for success, which is knowing the story, knowing who's driving the story, who's driving each scene, what's the scene about. And we have the heads of all departments support the director and we want them to succeed. Our director of photography, Mike Green, and our first camera operator, Jonathan Heron, who's also a director, they help a lot in guiding new directors and they give uh, great, astute recommendations that help the directors. So... If you're coming here and you're coming prepared and you do your homework, you have all the support you can imagine to uh, succeed. Well, on that one, Norberto, thank you so much for coming on Squadron. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap for the Squadron. We will be back after the winter break, and you can look forward to talks with Mariska Hargitay, Warren Light, Mike Post, and so many others. Don't forget to subscribe to the Law & Order SVU podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, as you know, we love hearing from you. We want to hear from you. So keep connecting with us on Instagram at NBCSVU and Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and Wolf And Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. Recording for this episode was done by Joe Tistel and Kate Levitt. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto. And we would like to extend a big thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help so far. As always, the Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. Thank you, and we'll see you in January.